You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 43 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are looking forward to our conversation about our most wanted list and Prue rail worker safety item and being able to talk with Rob Hall, the director of our Office of Railroad Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Investigations, as well as two of our railroad accident investigators, Tim DePape and Joe Gordon. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome for the first time, Rob, and welcome back, Tim and Joe. Thank Thank you. Thank you. We are um, happy, like Stephanie said, happy to have you on today. And before we get into our discussion about this most wanted list safety item and what that's all about, we will give you all an opportunity to introduce yourselves and give a little bit of background on how you arrived at the board. I'm going to start with our returning guests first, um, Tim DePape, if you wouldn't mind introducing you. And just for our guests, Tim was on episode 38 of Behind the Scene at NTSB talking about positive train control. Yes, my name is Tim DePape. I'm a railroad accident investigator with the NTSB. Um, I hired with the Chicago Northwestern in 1976, worked for them for 17 and a half years as a signal investigator, signal inspector, and then I went to the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen for 13 and a half years where I worked on uh, safety issues and I was the director of research. Uh, I testified on their behalf in Congress on positive train control, four quadrant gates and other safety systems. And then in 2008, I came to the safety board and uh, I've been here for almost 14 years. I've been involved as either a signal group chairman or an investigator in charge in approximately 30 accidents. And that's a brief uh, recap of my history. Thanks. And Tim, uh, just for our listeners, we are still in the virtual space. And uh, where are you joining us from today? I work out of uh, my home in the Chicago, Illinois area. Well, welcome again. And Joe, you were on episode 18 speaking about the Grettinger, Iowa train derailment. But can you reintroduce yourself to our guests? Yes, and uh, thanks for having me back. Um, Started my railroad career in 2000 with CSX Transportation and immediately got into the uh, safe operations side of railroading um, uh, as a track inspector first, uh, doing track safety inspections on multiple territories across the CSX system. Uh, joined the train accident prevention team the first opportunity that they reached out um, and we, we basically went out and, and investigated accidents to try to uh, learn root cause and, and put preventative measures in place to uh, prevent them from occurring. And from there, uh, I started to pursue a job in, in railroad safety. Um, I spent a brief time in the mechanical department and got to do some uh training of of mechanical department employees on their protection before leaving the railroad. And then I went to the um, State Corporation Commission as a track and mechanical safety inspector and worked there until I joined the FRA in 2009. Um, With the FRA, I did safety inspections throughout Virginia, accident investigations throughout Region 2, which was comprised of Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and um, also handled congressional complaints while I was with the FRA and um, got involved in some special operations there. So I I worked on uh, Operation Deep Dive when Metro North had a series of accidents. And uh, I know NTSB was, um, I think that resulted in an SIR over here, but um, we were paying attention to it there at FRA as well. And then came to, um, I, I was the IIC on a crude oil derailment, and that was my first exposure to NTSB that was in Lynchburg, Virginia. And mm-hmm. they just happened to have some jobs that were getting ready to be advertised and, and told me to take a look at them. And so I applied and here I am. So uh, it's been very interesting. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm on probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 accidents since I've come to the oh. NTSB 
not not always as an IIC or you know a group chairman, but um, you know getting pulled in to, to help on some subject matter in in about forty accidents at this point. So those are the number of files that I have on my computer in my accident files. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that, thanks again. Yeah. And Rob, we are very happy to have you on the podcast for the first time. Um, So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of a background on uh, what brought you to the NTSB, how long you've been here and your role. Yes, thank you. I've had a a very long career, uh, primarily in hazardous materials and safety. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had formerly worked at the uh, Department of Transportation and the Office of Pipeline Safety uh, and from there went to the Chemical Safety Board, uh, a sister agency of the NTSB uh, that investigates chemical accidents from fixed facilities. Uh, I was hired at the NTSB in 2011 uh, and began as the deputy of the Office of Railroad Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Investigations and became the director in 2013. Uh since being director, I have overseen about a hundred rail investigations wow. uh, in my eight years. Wow! And while we're talking about uh, your your office, can you tell us about the rail staff at NTSB? Um, their the experience of your office's investigative responsibilities and what makes uh, what makes RPH or Rail Pipeline and Hazardous Materials as we fondly refer to it. Um, what makes it unique in the agency? Well, for the, the modal agencies within the agency, uh, our office is the one office that has multimodal. Mm-hmm. We have rail, pipeline, and hazardous materials. And in fact, we support hazardous materials investigations in all modes of transportation. Mm-hmm. Although, most of those hazardous material investigations do occur in rail, which is why it's in our office. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a number of uh, really top-notch, highly qualified investigators uh, for a number of them. It's, it's kind of their final job in their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've come, you know, like Tim, they've come to us with great deals of experience and uh that's really helpful in doing the rail investigations. Uh, we, we do have uh, 13 rail investigators. We've got six investigators in our pipeline and hazmat group. And we're also supported by a system safety division with uh, four investigators. Mm-hmm. And you guys, like you kind of mentioned, all of you, you are quite busy. We are always busy, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Uh, w- one of my favorite sayings when I'm giving a talk is, I'd like you to put me out of business mm. because I really don't want to be doing the investigations. I want to stop accidents. Right. I think we all feel that way. So th- speaking of trying to prevent um, the investigations and the accidents that, that you see and that we see within the agency, in April, we announced our new most wanted list, our 2021-2022 most wanted list. And the safety item, Improve Rail Worker Safety, was added to the list. But before we jump into that, I feel like we should acknowledge and celebrate the tremendous success that actually the rail industry and um, experience with the full implementation of PTC actually right before we closed out um, our previous most wanted list. And I know that Rob, your office, Joe and Tim um, have done tremendous work to really advance that tremendous safety improvement for for industry. Um, And just wanted to acknowledge that before we go talking about what we have on on the list now. So, Rob, if you don't mind starting, um, can you just describe what the improved rail worker safety item is, what we're hoping to accomplish through through adding that to the most wanted list? Well, when we look at, at what we investigate in rail, uh, we investigate passenger train accidents where there are passenger fatalities and injuries. Uh, but we also investigate railroad worker accidents. Uh, and in fact, that's probably the larger number of accidents that we investigate in the course of a year are those of, of railroad workers. And we, we've seen some trends that we consider kind of, kind of disturbing that, uh, 
with the use of how railroad workers are protected out on the right-of-ways. Uh, and one of the things you mentioned, PTC, which is a huge success, but in PTC, part of the mandate was to uh, prevent incursions into work zones and to uh, use speed restrictions. And those two elements of PTC can protect roadway workers. But we found in our investigations that railroads are choosing not to use those features of PTC. Mm-hmm. And we we're, we're, want to really highlight that issue with the roadway workers that uh, there are features there, the system works, and we, the railroads need to be using those features. Sure. There are so many safety issues uh, impacting the rail industry, though. Um, Can you talk to us? um, And this can be uh, a conversation amongst the three of you, since I think you are all uh, somewhat involved in in the identification of the safety item. So could you talk us through how you how your office determined that the safety item um, kind of was narrowed down to uh, improve rail worker safety and and why it was selected as one of your safety priorities? So, yeah, we, uh, I think it was in um, August of 2020, the the office reached out for, for ideas. And so, you know, I, I didn't apply a whole lot of data logistics, but just what was, what was really close to home for me. And, I, you know, looking back at my recent accident, um, launches that I had gone on as either an IIC or a group chairman um, started with Edgemont, South Dakota, where we had two roadway workers that were struck and killed in 2017. And then we had um, uh, an accident again in 2017 with Queens Village, New York, um, and, and a very similar you know, type of protection that was being used. Um, and so uh, between Edgemont and Queens Village, the uh, Edgemont team had actually worked on a safety alert, um, safety alert number 66 that came out from the NTSB to the industry. And it was basically highlighting the watchman lookout train approach warning um, issue with with um, roadway workers. But then in addition to that, um, just knowing what some of the some of my colleagues were dealing with as far as, you know, a lot of um, mechanical uh, that. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but but we had mechanical inspectors that were getting killed in train yards. We had uh, train and engine employees, conductors, for the most part, that were working on the ground. And so with the implementation of PTC and the decline in these large scale freight train to passenger train collisions, these became the things that were that were really keeping us busy in rail. So, um, you know, and and just from the human element of it, just knowing that, you know, somebody didn't get get to go home to their family at the end of the day. And and so, um, you know, it was it was an effort by by all of rail staff to put it forward to management. And fortunately, they agreed with us and and moved it forward. So, uh, you know, thank Mr. Hall for his, you you know, for his uh, willingness to listen to the listen to the team. Mm -hmm. Joe, one of the um, one of the elements of the the road worker safety issue that you just mentioned, the um, train report approach warning systems and that being kind of the the countermeasures that's used and under our rail worker safety uh, side of this particular safety item on the most wanted list, that's definitely something that we're we're highlighting as being something that should be addressed. Can you just explain a little bit more about why um, we think that is uh, a very risky um, countermeasure for when when trying to protect workers? Okay, I saw Tim wants to weigh in on that, and and okay. uh, we'll, we'll kind of tackle that one together. Sure, sure. What I wanted to say about train approach warning is uh, the roadway worker protection regulations were one of the first uh, utilizations of the Rail Safety Advisory Committee, which started in about 1994, and the, the rule was enacted in 1997. During that rulemaking, train approach warning was primarily something that they used extensively by Amtrak in the Northeast Corridor. And 
Amtrak would not agree to the provisions of the regulation without getting this exception for train approach warning. And the Class 1 railroads basically used other forms of protection, you know, absolute track and time, where a worker would take a segment of track out, they'd be fully protected. It, there was a loss in productivity using that form, but it, it's one of the best forms of protection because it keeps trains from coming into your work zone. As Rob referenced er, earlier, you know, PTC wants to prevent incursions into roadway work zones. Well, absolute track and time is a good way of doing it if you don't have a PTC system. But train approach warning is not a good way of protecting workers because basically what you have is a watchman lookout who's looking for trains coming and he's got a paddle, maybe a whistle. If he sees a train, he blows the whistle, he waves the paddle, and hopefully his workers that he's responsible for get out of the way. And... With a lot of things that happen both in government and rulemaking rule, rule specifically are unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences of this regulation was after it was enacted, the large class one railroads decided, hey, we can use this train approach warning. We can increase our productivity. We won't have to take these tra tracks out of service and we can keep those trains moving. And as a result, they increased the amount of workers they were killing. Uh, and just for an example, to give you a statistic, in the 20-year period following the implementation of the Roadway Worker Protection Regulations, there were 52 fatal Roadway Worker Protection accidents in which 40, or excuse me, 55 roadway workers were killed. That's a lot of workers. Mm -hmm. And even though that's a reduction, you know, during the period that we studied when we were doing the initial rolls, an eight year period, I believe there was approximately 40 fatalities in eight years, while 55 fatalities over 20 years is definitely a reduction in the number of fatalities. That's still a lot of fatalities, especially when you see the increase of fatalities under or when they use train approach warning. And sure. with that, I'll kick it off to Joe if you want to add anything to that. I mean, that, that gives you a little history of mm -hmm. what happened. The, the labor and, and specifically labor agreed to or conceded to this position for Amtrak because they said they needed it in the Northeast. It's the way they had operated. They really wanted it. With any rulemaking, there's concessions both by labor management and the regulator, quite frankly. What they didn't envision was this widespread use of this one form of protection that most of the railroads hardly ever used or even had in their safety protocols. Yeah, and, and Tim mentioned it, and, you know, just to put a, a, a finer point on it or just to reiterate, really, um, every other form of, of on-track safety that's available to roadway workers is is a method that keeps trains from their work location. So mm -hmm. as far as work groups, every other, every other form of on-track safety keeps the trains away from the workers. And this is the only form of on-track safety that requires that the workers remain vigilant and get out of the way of trains. And it's, it's really a, a small window by the minimum standard um, they're only required to be in a predetermined place of safety 15 seconds before the train arrives at their location. So, you know, that that's there. There's not a lot of of wiggle room in right. proper compliance to keep the workers safe. So, uh, you know, that's that's one reason that we've really, um, you know, we've really been diving into to a deeper look at that form of on track safety with the increase of roadway worker fatalities using that form of on-track safety. And, and if I may add also, if I'm the watchman lookout, my work group comprises of Joe and uh, Rob, and I'm only protecting two people, if I make a mistake as the watchman lookout, if I'm lucky, I'll only kill myself and my two coworkers. But I might be protecting a group of 20 or 25 people. If I make a mistake, I could get them all killed. And uh, that's not a really good form of protection. And again, it, we can't stress enough how the other forms of protection keep 
trains from coming into the work area. Mm-hmm. As Joe said, if I've got to get out of the work area to be protected, that's really difficult sometimes. You know, I, I mean, if you only have if, to comply with the rule, you only have to be in the clear for 15 seconds. If the cufflink on my jeans snag, uh, snag on a, a rail clip or, or a spike, 15 seconds pass really fast. Right, yeah, that's not mm-hmm. a long time. I mean, you'll be surprised how quickly 15 seconds could go by when a 100-mile-an-hour train's coming at you. And then you start to panic. Or maybe it could be, it could be something as simple as one of the laces on your boot snagging on something. Mm-hmm. You, you can't slip off a boot like you can a high heel or, or, or a, a regular shoe. Right. I mean, you're pretty much, you're doomed to get, you got to deal with that. So there, there's real issues with that form of protection. And we've done five accidents, I believe, in the last five years, which resulted in seven fatalities between transit and uh, class one railroads. So it, it continues to be... Um, something we're looking into and we need to continue to look into it to, to, to reduce these, the, these numbers. Mm-hmm. So with this safety item, we have, uh, I believe, 31 safety recommendations associated with it. Um, can you talk, uh, in addition to, to the previous uh, recommendation, but what other safety investments need to be made to improve rail worker safety? Uh, yeah, so um, as you mentioned, the 31 recommendations, and I don't have the list in front of me right now, but, um, you know, we, we do have, um, we have made recommendations in the past to FTA and, you know, this train approach warning issue that we're talking about on FRA and on the class ones, um, FRA, to their credit, they do have standards and 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 minimum standards for how workers protect themselves and um, currently fta doesn't have similar standards and so that's that's one of the recommendations that it's included in those in the uh, current recommendations that we plan to highlight with this uh, initiative in addition um, you know and not just to focus only on the on the roadway workers the majority of those 31 recommendations are related to the roadway worker um, accidents that we've had in the past, uh, a smaller number, you know, directed toward train and engine employees and conductors. I think one of the reasons that there's that there's a disparity in those numbers is just the scale of these roadway worker accidents. If, mm-hmm. if you look, it, it, it's typically more than one fatality. Um, sometimes we have in, equipment involved where, you know, uh, like in Chester, where we had an Amtrak train that struck a backhoe that was occupying the track. So not only was there a hazard presented to the, to the ground workers, to the roadway workers, but also to the passengers and the crew on the train. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons there, but we, we do have, and, and I know Rob, uh, can probably speak to this more. We, we do have one of the recommendations dealing with train and engine employees is is buffer cars and and getting more um, more distance between hazardous materials that the train's carrying and the occupied cab of the locomotive. And so there, you know, that's that's the reason that when we said rail worker safety, you know, we wanted to encompass all these employees and not just focus only on the roadway workers. For this particular item, we have a kind of two segments of the rail worker population that we're focused on. So we just spent a lot of time talking about roadway workers, but we also have operations and mechanical crews. Um, and so that's where some of the recommendations that Joe was just mentioning. And so Rob, yeah, go go ahead and <laughs> and talk about that side. But I just wanted to make sure that we share that it's it's kind of a two two segments of of workers that we're talking about. Yeah, the buffer car rule, uh, which really dates back uh probably close to 100 years, was primarily uh, put in place uh, when trains were carrying explosives. Mm -hmm. And they required five cars between uh, the locomotive and any any car carrying a hazardous material. And what we've seen, and then there was an exclusion that FRA provided, which allowed for well, if your train doesn't have enough cars to have five cars between 
the locomotive and your hazardous material, uh, you can go with less, but you have to have at least one. And that was the rule for many years. Then with the advent of the uh, alcohol for fuels, ethanol for fuels, and crude oil uh, by rail, uh, we saw hazardous materials being carried in a unit train, which is a train that only carries hazardous material. Mm -hmm. So a crude oil unit train could have a 100 cars of crude oil or likewise with ethanol. And the interpretation of that rule was they only needed one buffer car. And we've seen accidents, uh, um, particularly in Castleton, uh, and we have another one that's coming out soon that uh, uh, will be issued uh, probably in the next uh, couple months, uh, where the train and engine crew was really at risk because of fires caused by these hazardous materials that were close to the locomotive. Mm. And so we've asked for FRA to look at that rule and actually make it a risk-based uh, rule. What, it, what is really the risk and what is, uh, what is an appropriate distance? And just for clarification, when you say buffer car, do you mean that's just a, a train car that's totally empty or is it carrying is it carrying anything? Can you explain that to me? Well, it's a car that doesn't carry hazardous materials. In the okay. unit trains, they will typically use a hopper car filled with sand or rock uh, as the buffer car. Mm -hmm. But it, it could be, you know, box cars. It could be other other uh, cars of non-hazardous materials, depending upon uh, what the trains are. But in the event, let's say, of a derailment and the hazardous material releasing from that tank car, whatever is buffering still also is at risk of being destroyed in some way. Yeah, that's true. Yes. You asked about uh, also like the operations people, personnel, you know, there, there's been an increase in uh, deaths to crew members and shoving moves. Um, and that's something that we're also looking at. And I just, I, I, I did want to touch uh, also a lot of times when they do a shoving move, a conductor may, he may also be operating the train with a remote control belt pack. So there'll be no one in the engine and he'll be shoving across a grade crossing or shoving into an industry. So he's supposed to be watching out for the movement and he's also controlling the train. And that multitasking sometimes takes him away from his environment. You know, if he's riding on the side of a car while also operating a belt pack, he may not be paying attention and he may get rubbed off of that car and killed that way. Wow. So that's another area that we're looking at. But I, I did want to talk and touch on the point that Joe referenced. One thing with roadway worker protection regulations, when we go on transit accidents, um, I've been on a CTA accident in Chicago. I've been on a, a transit accident in New York City. And because it's FTA, they're not covered by the roadway worker protection regulations. Those are only the class one railroads. But what they all say to me is they go, Tim, we follow their rules almost, almost to the letter. And then you look at their protocols and safety things, and they basically cherry pick the rules to get the ones that afford the most protection while still keeping productivity at the best. But then they'll leave little things out like in the regulation, a worker has a right to question the, his protection if he thinks it's inadequate. He has the absolute right to do that. They'll stop working. They actually convene. There's a layer of uh, management review. And until the worker is satisfied that the protection that he has is, is adequate, they don't have to do the work. Well, the transits, they'll just skip that part because that kind of messes up the productivity if you actually stop the work. So it's very important to realize that the transits don't have anything in writing regulatory-wise regulatory to protect the workers. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
Joe or Tim or Rob, I, you know, we've, we've spent um, some time talking about the fatalities that result from, from some incidents that we've investigated, but fatalities we know don't always tell the whole story. And I'm just wondering what, what injuries look like without having the, the proper protections in place. I can't imagine that all of these are, um, are just minor injuries that I imagine that some of these are maybe lifelong, life altering types of injuries that people are experiencing as well. Go ahead, Rob, I see. Yeah, the, uh, the injuries, and in fact, there's far more injuries than there are fatalities, but there are numbers of life-changing uh, injuries. It's, it's very common that people will lose limbs. Uh, they will lose their legs or they will lose an arm uh, because the, when, a, when a train rolls over you, uh, it rolls over you. It doesn't stop. Uh, so, I mean, we see these horrific injuries as well, uh, and they are life changing. Yes, and and very much more prevalent on the on the train crews, the conductors, the guys that are out there, uh, the the uh, men and women that are out there actually building the trains. Um, much more likely to have life altering, debilitating injuries like the amputations. Um, we don't see that as common with, with roadway workers because normally with the roadway workers, it's a, it's a train strike. Um, they're not in between equipment. So they're, they're at the head end of the equipment. So, um, unfortunately they're very unforgiving that big equipment and there aren't many that walk away from those. But, um, yeah, as Rob mentioned, so, so many, um, so many of you know, double amputations and, and just things that that are just completely life altering for the employees and their families. And the more that we can focus on, you know, reaching the peak of the pyramid, then then that's also going to have effects on the downside to the near misses and the close calls and, and some of these accidents that don't result in a fatality. But but, um, you know, aside from the emergency response and and proper care would have. And Tim, uh, I recall you speaking about uh, the rail worker history in your family, about your father and 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 yourself and and talking about, um, you know, when someone goes off to their job, they shouldn't feel as though they are at risk of losing their life or being severely injured. And I think that that probably that just that anecdote that you've told in the past really lines up with the safety item. It, it really does because you, you know, to make it personal, I promised my mom when I hired on the railroad that I wouldn't get hurt and I wouldn't get killed. Mm-hmm. And I, I told her I'd do my best to do that. And the sad thing is, you can be ever vigilant, but as we're talking about roadway worker and talking about train movements and shoving movements and yards, you can do everything right and still get killed. You can do everything right and still get maimed. And that that's where the problem is. And like Joe even said a reference about a, an accident triangle, you know, and the focus tends to be at the top of the pyramid where the fatalities are. Well, our, our focus with train approach warning, this is in, inherently a problem because we have these, we have a ton of near misses at the bottom. And Joe was the IIC for the Edgemont uh, South Dakota accident. And fortunately and unfortunately, they had a forward facing video on that train. Mm-hmm. And as part of our review, Joe, myself, and a select, a very small select group of people had to review that video frame by frame to try and see what went wrong, who, you know, to, to identify the problem so we could make recommendations to fix them. Mm-hmm. And I got to admit, it, it, it's a life changing moment for myself as an investigator to see someone die. I mean, mm-hmm. they basically, two of the gentlemen got struck and they died. The third, though, grace of God, he happened to just step out of the way of the train. He never saw the train, but if, if one less step, and he, it would have been three fatalities. And it's not just coming home alive and with all your limbs. I feel for that third individual because there's got to be a survivor's guilt there. He's with his two friends. They've worked together. 
uh, maybe friends is the wrong word, co-workers. It's hard to live through something like that and not feel some guilt that maybe you could have done something different or something better or why me type of thing. And, and it's a very traumatic experience for the worker. It's a traumatic experience for the engineer because he's striking and killing co-workers uh, of his railroad. There are engineers, you know, in the old days, they made the engineer stay in the train. He kept on going. There was no time off, nothing like that. Now they get five up to five days off to deal with the trauma. There's counseling and stuff. But I'll tell you, having worked with the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineer and Trainman Union, they're engineers that don't go back to work because they can't handle the trauma of killing a coworker. Mm -hmm. So it's very traumatic. And we're trying to get at the bottom of that pyramid with a bad procedure in that particular incident so that we reduce those numbers at the top. Right. Tim mentioned something that just really hit home with me as well, and that's the fact that you can be doing everything right. Um, yeah, I w it was early on in my inspection career with the railroad, and, and I was out doing a, a walking track inspection in a rock quarry um, I had stopped in and, and spoke with the management at the quarry and, and verified with them that they weren't loading cars that day. And it was just uh, a couple of tracks, maybe quarter of a mile long tracks. And so I went down, had my statement of on-track safety filled out and in my pocket of my vest. Um, I'm inspecting track, looking you know for defective ties, measuring gauge, doing different things. And... Um, you know, I had been looking behind me from time to time, but, uh, you know, also working under the the understanding that they weren't moving any cars and just happened to catch something out of the corner of my eye that I felt like I needed to take a closer look at in the adjacent track. Didn't have anything to do with feeling anything closing on me or anything like that. And I, I stepped over into that adjacent track and just moments after I stepped over into the track, a train came, uh, a cut of about three loaded cars came, um, no, no locomotive. So they were just had a, an employee on riding a handbrake and steel wheels on steel rails don't make a whole lot of noise at low speed. So, wow. um, you know, it would have probably been a, a 10 or 15 mile an hour impact, but you know, had I stayed where I was, it would have been a knuckle right in the center of my back. And, you know, I, I had a two-year-old daughter at home. So I, I, I really, it was, a, it was a near miss that stuck with me for the rest of my rail, railroad career. And if you ever see me out on a railroad track, then you'll see my head constantly on a swivel because mm -hmm. I'll never forget that day. And that's our charter. We're, we're told to investigate these accidents come up with a probable cause and make recommendations to prevent them. Mm -hmm. It's not just, the, all of us have personal stories that work for railroads where we've almost got hit. It, it's unfortunately a way of life on the railroad still to this day. But when we look at these accidents and we make these recommendations, it's to prevent, we, we really wanna get those near misses down to almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Because when you get those down to nothing, then you don't have the fatalities. And, and I also have to piggyback on something Rob said earlier. I say the same thing when we do closeout meetings at an accident. I tell the signal group, I go, it's a real pleasure to meet you all, but I hope to never see you again, and I hope you put me out of business. Mm -hmm. you know, that's like you referenced earlier about positive train control. Nothing would make me happier than PTC being so successful that we don't have any major accidents at all anymore. Mm -hmm. Nothing would make me happier if we could get our arms around the issue with the roadway workers and the train crews, get those numbers down to nothing. Ro roadway worker protection regulations went into effect 1997, like I said. It's been 24 years. There's only been one year where we went an entire year and didn't kill a single roadway worker. Every other year, the 23 years, killed at least one. And in most cases, it was quite more than one. Mm -hmm. So if we could get to zero, that would be awesome because you literally would put us out of business and productivity would go up. That, that's, that's something we 
that's not our charter, but it's in the railroad's interest, and they know that. You know, it, if workers feel safe, they're more productive. If they don't feel safe, they're less productive. That's a simple fact. Absolutely. And speaking about the recommendations that we've made, um, they are to, you know, they're to the regulator, they're to railroads, et cetera. Um, but not every, not every rail worker or uh, organization out there has a safety recommendation given to them. But there are things that they can do to improve rail worker safety. Can you talk about some voluntary um, initiatives that that any rail group could implement that would improve the safety for these individuals? So uh, one thing that I can speak to in that regard is is uh, fatigued workers. Um, mm -hmm. We you know we are we have made some recommendations to. Um, to deal with hours of service and, and fatigue and make sure that people are fit and, and ready for the day. And that's something that we are seeing a lot of the uh, movement in the industry on their own. Mm -hmm. They're, they're taking those initiatives and, and moving them forward. And another issue um, that, that we're seeing some promising, um, you know, initiative in the industry is uh, technology and, and, there are some technological approaches to kind of um, not really eliminating a watchman from a train approach warning scenario, but, but providing them also with a redundant type um, alert when a, when a train's approaching the work area. So there's, there's been a lot of work and uh, a little bit too early to speak about it right now, but I'm working in an, on an accident in Vail, Arizona, where we had a roadway worker that uh, was struck by a piece of equipment in the production gang that he was working on. And there's some, uh, they, they pointed us to some technology that's being explored in the industry with um, almost alerting operators when workers are within the red zone of the equipment. So, so there, there are a lot of initiatives that, uh, that they're taking on their own. And, and, you know, just to that end, just, you know, to ask the railroads and, and the transit agencies just to do a, a risk assessment of every project that they go out on and, mm -hmm. and do a proper uh, risk mitigation. And that, that will definitely, you know, lead them in the right direction. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, one very simple thing that we've seen uh, be effective in some railroads that have implemented is along the lines of see something, say something. Mm. If you see an unsafe act by a coworker, tell them it's an unsafe act. And, you know, that can go a long way into preventing, you know, little accidents and big accidents. And, and it's one of those things that some of the railroads have adopted. It's something that every individual could adopt on their own to uh, help improve safety in their workplace. Mm -hmm. Sure. When we look at the most wanted list and, you know, we've, we've been talking about the, the mission of the NTSB is to simply prevent the accidents that we've already investigated from happening again. And looking at the, the two years that we have to do advocacy work right now around this particular issue, what do you hope to see implemented. We, we mentioned that we have 31 recommendations associated with them. Most of them are not new. In fact, some of them date back almost a decade <laughs> that we've been asking for improvements. But what, what would you really like to see in, in the next two years um, to improve safety in this area? Well, there's two big items that I'd really like to see. One is I'd like to see FTA issue some real uh, regulations around uh, roadway worker safety, like FRA has done. Uh, the other one is I want to see those features built into positive train control used to protect roadway workers. Mm -hmm. Why did the railroad spend all these billions of dollars if they're not going to use those systems to their full potential? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I touched on it when I did the previous pod podcast about positive train control. Um, I envision a time when they put the, a small GPS uh, about the size of a grain of rice underneath the skin of workers to anytime they're in the envelope of the track 
And uh, I, I just heard one of my coworkers laugh, and that's the response I've been getting for the last 20 years when I bring this up, because that, well, actually that's the response I got from the president of the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen. But it's a real thing because they're already using types of not Apple watches, but similar devices. They're experimenting with that because ultimately I see them using positive train control if a worker has either the device on them or the actual GPS locator under their skin and they're in the envelope where they could get struck or hit by a train, they'll be able to warn the train. And I, I see that type of usage down the road. But as Rob um, alluded to, the railroad's focus, there were four, there were originally three core functions of positive train control, prevent, prevent train to train collisions, prevent incursions in the roadway worker uh, uh, work areas, and, uh, um, and prevent civil overspeeds. And then after Graniteville, they added protect switches in dark territory. The railroads focused on three of the four and not the incursions in the roadway work zones. And that's where they need to go now to reduce the number of fatalities, specifically for the roadway workers. If we can get that number down, and at the same time, we're gonna be focusing on operations crews, the, the fatalities and maimings in yards and shoving movements. And our goal is to make it a much safer work environment, even though it's a very dangerous environment. But with the recommendations we've made, I believe, and I, I believe the board believes that that's possible. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, gentlemen, it is getting towards the end of our podcast. And um, I just wanted to make a mention that we are releasing this podcast uh, during the week of Rail Safety Week. Um, and while that is a campaign that is to educate uh, the general public to keep themselves uh, safe near highway rail grade crossings, it's still also another reminder around rail worker safety and, um, and safety of operations and mechanical crews. So as we're wrapping up, uh, I just want to give each of you an opportunity for any final thoughts about uh, rail worker safety, um, general safety around railroads, any final thoughts that you have uh, that you want to leave with our audience before we close out? And I will start with Rob. Yeah, one thought, and, and this really for the general public as, as well as rail workers, uh, there's human perception issues with, with trains. The size of the train, the noise of the train, the speed at which it's moving, uh, you don't always hear them when they're approaching you. Uh, they approach much quicker than what you perceive they will. And so those people that, that might be on tracks or trying to run gates at a grade crossing, uh, that trains on top of you before you ever expect it. Mm -hmm. And you really need to, to uh, respect that your perception may not be correct and that you need to stay off the tracks. Sure. Thanks. Joe? Uh, yeah, and this is just kind of, uh, you know, bouncing off of what Rob said, but one of the things that they told us early on in the railroad industry was always expect a train on any track from either direction at any time. Mm -hmm. And I may have not gotten all those in order because it's been a while, but, you know, um, there, I, I used to run into people all the time when I was with the railroad and, and as a regulator and when I got to spend more time actually high railing and out and about that thought that they knew train schedules. So, um, the, the most, I guess, alarming, uh, um, observation that I ever had with that was I, I was high railing through the great Bend tunnel and, uh, the great Bend tunnel or the big Bend tunnel, the big Bend tunnel is beside the great Bend tunnel, which is where John Henry and the steam drill, uh, faced off in legend. So that was on my original territory. And um, I was high railing and I see something in the tunnel and it was, and it, we were accustomed to seeing animals in the tunnel and different things. But as I got closer and, and uh, you know, shine the spotlight on the object in the track, it was two kids. And mm -hmm. oh, wow. they were probably, um, 
you know, somewhere 12, 10 years old, somewhere in that area, in that range. And, and so, you know, I, I was just scared for them. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, tried to come up behind them in the truck without scaring them and, and wasn't exactly sure how to do that. But they didn't hear the, the, the high rail truck. And so I stopped the truck and walked up to them and said, you know, we need to get you out of the tunnel. And um, I figured, you know, I'll get them out of the tunnel and then we'll figure out the rest. You know, who do mm-hmm. I call? Mm-hmm. What do I do? So got to the other side of the tunnel and their their grandmother was waiting on the other side of the tunnel and she had dropped them off. Oh. Um, this tunnel had a curve. Um, it was close to a mile long and she had dropped them off to let them walk through the tunnel because she had lived around that area all her life. And she knew when the trains came through. And I said, ma'am, I've worked for the railroad for seven years, and I don't know when the next train's coming through. If I'm not holding track time, there's no schedule. There used to be a schedule. So I think there's a, a perception, and sometimes people will look at tracks that that don't look like they're shiny, and they'll say, well, you know, if a train's running on the tracks, then the tracks are shiny. And that's not always the case. So. Mm-hmm. The best thing to do is see a track, stay away from the track. You're trespassing if you're on the track, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're a part of the general public. So um, I know people like to take pictures on railroad tracks, but, um, you know, be sure that you that you find a, a photographer that has a set of tracks set up somewhere that's not connected to the general system. <laughs> right. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Joe. And Tim? And thank you. I, I just, uh, I'd like to leave us with the thought that um, the regulators, the railroads, and the workers have to continue to work together to find solutions to reduce and eliminate railroad fatalities. And with our recommendations and that commitment from those three bodies, we can achieve that goal together. And I just hope that continues to happen. Thanks. Stephanie, do you have any final thoughts before we close out? Thank you, Rob, Joe, and Tim for your time. Joe and Tim, thanks so much for coming back and talking with us again. And Tim, you keep saying that that you're you're soon to be leaving NTSB. And I just, um, I'm very thankful for the work that you've done and your commitment to improving rail safety. Um, and just, you know, your willingness to always share your perspective and, and your knowledge with us. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you very much. I will echo Stephanie's uh, thanks to all three of you and Tim. Um, whenever it is, whenever your official retirement comes, we will miss you. Um, and we hope to stay in touch in the future. But gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast today. Thank you, Stephanie, for being my co-host. And thank you, James Anderson, for being a fantastic producer and making us always sound amazing. And we will talk to you at the next episode. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.